Scripture reading for today is uh, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. It can be found on page 902 of your pew Bibles. Jesus is speaking. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ryan. Well, before we come uh, to this passage, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, would you please bow your heads and hearts, uh, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is because of your promises uh, that we are here. Uh, it is because of your goodness to us. It's because of your grace to us. Um, Father, that can be hard to remember uh, in the midst of... Um, of the challenges and, and the strivings and the trials um, of this life. Um, I agree uh, with, with Stephanie. I am thankful for Psalm 65. Uh, I am thankful uh, for all of your psalms and, and how they express the whole gamut of human emotion and how they encourage us to come before you uh, and to lay it uh, at, at your feet. Um, Father, we know that what we are here in this service to do first and foremost um, is to commune with you, is to worship you, uh, is to have our hearts oriented toward you, um, not only to lay at your feet uh, our cares and our anxieties, which you tell us to do because you care for us, and that boggles our minds, um, but also that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you would say to your people. Um, your word constantly makes it clear. Jesus himself constantly made it abundantly clear um, that it is just like us not to see, uh, to have ears but not to hear, um, to run in the opposite direction. Um, but it is just like you to pursue us. It is just like you uh, to speak um, to those uh, who would not listen. 
um, to open the ears of our hearts. Uh, as we were reminded this morning in leadership training, um, when you tell us that our salvation lies in rest and repentance and when, and when we will just have none of it, um, your word says that you wait. You wait to be gracious to us. You exalt yourself to be merciful to us. Um, Father, my prayer, our prayer as a people coming before you and sitting under your word is that you would do that very thing in this very hour. Um, that you would be merciful to us by giving us ears uh, to hear what you would say to us. Um, that you would exalt yourself as a God who waits. Um, as a God who overcomes um, all of our um, blocks, all of our defenses, as it were, uh, against you, uh, a God who pursues us for our good. Father, would you knit us together? Um, thank you that you've given us to each other. Thank you that you have made us uh, one body. We thank you for this word uh, that you have given us. We thank you for the way that it points us uh, at, at Jesus, and particularly uh, in these passages in John where we get to hear his very words um, and hear the way that he loved his disciples to the very end and, and, and by extension can say, this is how he loves us. This is how he loves me. Um, this Jesus who gave himself for me and died for me. Thank you that every person in this room uh, who has put their faith in you can say those words with that pronoun, me, Jesus gave himself for me, he died for me. This is my Lord and Savior. Father, not that you would break us apart, um, but that you would knit us together as having that common confession of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would remind us of all of these things as we come to your word. Father, I, I do pray as always that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I, I hope that it is uh, encouraging to you to hear the disciples just come out and say it, right? What is he talking about? We don't get it. Um, everything that we've been looking at Certainly, this, this, this spring and, and in so much of the Gospel of John, there is just no category for what Jesus is doing. There is no precedent um, for a Messiah who washes his disciples' feet. There is no category for the Word made flesh dwelling among us, and we see him, we behold his glory. There, there is no category for the cross. Um, there is absolutely no precedent and, and, and no previous model to fit uh, any of this uh, in. And, and, yet, and yet Jesus, um, in, these, in these chapters that we've been looking at, uh, since chapter 13, as he's, as he's maintaining this sustained dialogue um, with his disciples, it says this is how he loved them. It says that, that having loved them, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end in washing their feet, uh, in going to the cross, and in between, uh, in saying some hard things, some hard-to-understand things, in saying that just as I um, am laying down my life for you, I'm calling you to do the same, to lay down your lives uh, for one another. That is what defines the love of one who knows 
Jesus' love uh, for them. Um, and we have said that is a hard thing to hear. That is a thing that causes us to stop and say, how are we doing? Are we laying down our lives for one another? And so it is good, uh, it is good that Jesus then gives us so much encouragement and tells us what he is going to do to sustain us, uh, to enable us uh, to follow his commandments, right? Um, he has said that he is going to send his very spirit uh, into our midst. Um, and here in this chapter, uh, he continues uh, speaking of our sorrow, uh, the sorrow that, that he knows. Last week, um, Bradley asked us the question, do we believe that God knows our sorrow? And we can keep asking ourselves that. Um, but this week, Jesus talks about how sorrow turns into joy. Um, we're going to see three things in this passage. He's, he's going to keep talking about sorrow, the reality of sorrow, but also the limits, the limitations of sorrow, but then the fullness of joy. And after the limitations of sorrow and the fullness of joy, he's going to challenge us to have the confidence to ask, to come to him, uh, to come to our Heavenly Father, and to ask um, for all uh, that we need. And we're going to need a lot of encouragement um, to, have that, to have that kind of confidence. So let's take a look at this, at this passage. And again, if, if, if you read this through and the first time you say, we do not know what he is talking about, you're in very good company. His disciples themselves uh, said exactly that. So the limitations of sorrow. Um, so again, God knows our grief. Uh, he knows our sorrow. This is something that Scripture says again and again. Um, one of my favorite passages uh, in, in the Bible is the one that comes right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? It's actually in chapter 2 um, when it says, In those days the cry of the people from, from slavery went up to God, and it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Um, God is a God who sees his people. Uh, he sees us more intimately than we see ourselves. He knows our sorrow. He remembers. He knows. And in Jesus, we say even more than that, right? We say that in Jesus, he has actually tasted our sorrow. Um, the author of Hebrews talks about it being fitting for Jesus to be made perfect through suffering. Um, which is something that takes a lot of unpacking. What does that mean? Um, but there it is. Here is one who has come and tasted our sorrows. He's been acquainted with our griefs. He has borne uh, our burdens. And I just want to keep, keep asking, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus, the God-man, right, the Word made flesh, um, knows your pain, knows your suffering, knows your sorrows, um, that he is near to you uh, in the midst of affliction. Um, we can say those words so often, right? God is a God uh, who dwells in a high and holy place, but is also with the lowly and contrite, that God is near to the afflicted and the brokenhearted. We can, we can say those things often enough that when the reality of suffering comes, when the, when the reality of affliction comes, um, they can start to sound like platitudes, 
It can start to sound trite. We want to keep asking ourselves, do we really believe that God himself knows our suffering, that he is with us um, in the middle of it? Um, Jesus knows that he's about to go to his father, that he's about to leave, and he knows what this is going to do to his followers. He knows the grief um, that this will uh, inflict on them. And so he's been giving them all this encouragement that he would send the Holy Spirit. Um, but now, more than that, not only that he would send the, the, the Holy Spirit, he says, in a little while you'll see me no longer, but again in a little while, and you will see me. Right, and this is where the disciples go, what? Like, what does that mean? What is this a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while uh, and you will see me. Um, the commentaries all, all say, like, the, the fact that that phrase a little while is repeated again and again and again, I mean, it's like seven times in four verses, um, means that John really wants you to hear that. Right, he really wants you to hear um, that this time of suffering um, that the disciples are going to endure um, is limited, that it is a little while. Um, Jesus is almost certainly talking about the fact that it's only a little while until his death, uh, until, his resur- until, until the crucifixion, right? But then only a little while after that, uh, that he'll be raised uh, and, that they'll, and that they'll see him again. That, that seems to make the most sense of the fact that he says uh, that first you're going to weep while the world is rejoicing, um, but then your sorrow will turn into joy. That seems to fit the pattern of uh, his, his death, his crucifixion on the one hand, um, and, then, uh, and, then, and then the resurrection. But again, the emphasis is on this is just a little while. Um, I think that the question that this puts in front of us in the midst of our own sufferings, in the midst of our own afflictions, um, we know, because we have the whole story in front of us, um, that it would be three days from the time that, that Jesus is crucified uh, to the time that, that he is raised, um, right? It's on, it's, on, it's on the third day uh, that he comes back. Um, what do we do with our own suffering when we don't know the end, when we don't know when this is, is going to be over? Are we able to say of this, this also is a little while. Um, the temptation is to think um, that in saying that this is just a little while, that Jesus is somehow making light um, of our suffering, right? And in fact, the temptation, this is similar to what Bradley said last week, just like we have a temptation um, to turn to people and, and using words similar to what Jesus says when he says, it's better for you that I go, you know, we're tempted sometimes to turn to people who are suffering and say, you know, it's actually better for you that you're suffering. Um, and that is not what Jesus is giving us the right to say. Um, and similarly here, um, Jesus is not giving us the right uh, to make light uh, of the suffering that we experience and, and to say, um, this is not that bad. 
um, this, is, this is not a bad, that bad of a thing. Because in the midst of it, uh, in the midst of a suffering that we don't know when it will end, um, it is not helpful for us or for anyone else uh, to have it be made light of. Um, and that is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is nowhere saying, you know, the suffering is not that bad. Jesus is not saying me being taken from you is not that bad. In fact, he's, he's doing the opposite. He's acknowledging that's going to grieve you. You are going to weep. He even knows that how it will strike at them and cause them to scatter, contrary to what they all expected that they would do, right? Um, he knows that it will be that bad. Jesus is certainly not saying that his death, that the cross itself, is not that bad a thing. Um, it is that bad. Um, God made flesh bearing the sins of the world, and those sins themselves are tragic, are evil. What Jesus is saying is that what is coming after that, the joy, is so much greater as to overwhelm suffering and evil in all of its reality without for a minute making light of it, right? So this is where he uses this metaphor, right? Um, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So this is the part of the sermon now where I explain to you what it is like to give birth to a child. I'll repeat that. I will explain to you. Um, Bradley and I, you know, we, we, we get to study the passage each week, and when we got to that, he, we just kind of laughed. He said, good luck there. Um, I, will, I will just say this. I have been told, I think that's the best way to put this, I have been told that what Jesus is saying here is, in fact, the reason. Any of you who are second children, third children, four, like basically anything other than the oldest child in your family, it is a minor miracle that you exist at all, <laughs> right? Um, and, and it has a lot to do uh, with what Jesus is saying. Um, he's talking about real pain, very real pain, very real anguish. And in this case, we have it explicitly in the third chapter of Genesis that this is not the way it's supposed to be right? Like, this pain is part of the curse. It has no place uh, in God's good creation. And yet, and yet, it's worth it. Because when a human being is born, there is such joy um, that it is, that it overwhelms the pain. Um, it overwhelms the grief. Um, it swallows it up. It's kind of, it makes sense that Jesus would use this metaphor um, for a couple reasons. I mean, on the one hand, he has already talked uh, about the need to be born again, right? The need for new life. Um, so he's already dealing in these categories of like, this is, this is what God does. Um, it is not that, um, it is not that God turns suffering and evil uh, into a good thing. It is that he can use suffering and evil, which is evil, which is broken, and he, and he can use it uh, for good. He can bring life out of death. Um, this is actually a, 
uh, an, an image that they would have been very familiar with um, from passages like in, in the book of Isaiah. This was, this was a way that the Old Testament described um, the coming um, of the Messiah um, and, what, and what that would be like. Um, the reason that I think it's so important that we understand um, that Jesus is not making light um, of, our, of our suffering here um, is because I know that that, um, that, that, is a, 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 that that is something that people really wrestle with um, as they consider who God is, um, as they consider whether he exists. You know, how can it be that there is a good God in the midst of a world um, of so much suffering? Um, and to say uh, that the suffering is not that bad um, is simply not faithful uh, to what God himself says. Um, we see this, this kind of, of wrestling um, in the work of, uh, of, of, of uh, the Russian author Dostoevsky. Right? In the Brothers Karamazov, there's exactly this kind of wrestling going on. And there's this one passage there where one of the, the Karamazov brothers, Ivan, um, who is having a major crisis of faith, um, says something that sounds pretty good, that, that sounds like a pretty good way of making sense of, of suffering. Um, here's what he says. He says, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened with men. That sounds like a pretty good way of explaining um, suffering. The problem with it is that last thing that he said, that he says, I believe that something will happen that's so wonderful, so beautiful, right, so precious, that it will be possible to justify all that has happened. In other words, to say, all of that evil, all of that suffering, it all had to be that way. That was the only way to get to something good. And to do that gives evil and suffering a place in the world. Um, it makes sense of it. And Ivan himself um, is smart enough to know that that just won't do. Um, I didn't finish his sentence. I didn't even stop, stop with a period. His sentence keeps going um, after he says what I read. The very next thing that he says is, but though all that may come to pass, I won't accept it. And you keep reading and he says, if that's the world that I'm being asked to offer, then I would like to return my ticket. Um, if that's who God is, if God is a God who justifies evil and gives it a place in the world, then I want no part of that God. The good news of the resurrection of the Son of God um, is that evil has not been justified. Um, it has been swallowed up. Death has not been given a place in the world. It has been defeated. Jesus is not making light of your suffering. 
he is, simp- he is saying, similar to what Paul says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory uh, that's going to be revealed. Jesus has more to say about that joy, and I want us to pay attention to this. Um, He also says, in verse 22, he says, Listen, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Um, So not only is this a joy that will overwhelm the sorrow, um, but it is a joy that lasts. It is a stable joy. Um, It is an imperishable joy. Um, This, again, makes the most sense if he's talking about the resurrection, right? He's talking about the defeat of death. This is a joy that death itself cannot put an end to. Paul, again, Romans 6, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And, and, And think about this. Think about what it would mean if that's not true. What would it mean if death has not been defeated? What would it mean if death is simply a part of the way the world is supposed to be, right? Just part of nature, just something that we just have to accept. If that's true, then there is no lasting joy. There is is nothing that we enjoy, um, nothing that we consider precious, nothing that we consider valuable, of which we could say about it, it can never, ever be taken away. Because in the end... Death will take it all. Our death will take it. The death of our children, the death of our grandchildren, right? There's that song from the 90s, which, as I always say, we're kind of a silly decade. There's that song from the 90s by the Flaming Lips. Do you realize that everyone you know one day will die? You're thinking, man, I was listening to a fun song a second ago. What, why are you making me think about that? Everyone you know one day will die. Everyone born after them will die. What joy do we have? If death is not defeated, what joy could we possibly have that eventually the ultimate heat death of the universe is not going to render completely meaningless? Jesus is bringing us back to this question that he's been asking since chapter 15. Where do you find joy? Where do you rest? Where do you abide? Remember chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Where do you abide? This has real implications for our life together. As we think about this challenge to lay down our lives um, for each other. Um... If our relationships with one another are as temporary and as transient um, as they are really anywhere, if death hasn't been defeated, but certainly in a place like Boston, right? If our relationships are temporary and transient, then why on earth would any of us lay down our lives for one another? How could that possibly make sense, right? What hard-headed, rational, cost-benefit analysis could you do that would lead you to think, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll lay down my life for these people who may or may not be around in a few years. 
But if we are made to abide in a vine that will never die, and as branches in that vine are made for eternity, then that means that the fact that we have been given to each other is not some temporary, transient thing. And that the lives that we live in which goodbyes are so common is not the way the world is. That there will come a day where there will not be any more goodbyes. That there will come a day when we will worship together at the Feast of the Lamb. And if that's true, then you can begin to see how it would be worth it, how it would make sense for us to lay down our lives for one another. The last thing that Jesus says in this passage, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. And yet, at the same time, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and remember, whenever Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that means stop what you're doing and listen, because this part's important. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So how do we make sense of this? Again, the disciples, I'm sure, are thinking, what is he talking about? How, how is it that we will ask nothing of him and yet we're being told to ask? Here's what I think is going on. On the other hand, after this little while, when their sorrow is ended, because they see him again, their joy will be full because they will have what they are most longing for, because they will have him. So in that moment, there won't be anything left to ask for. In that moment, there won't be some other blessing that they want to ask Jesus for because simply in having him alive, they will have what they are most longing for. So in that sense, there's nothing to ask for. But at the same time, if they believe in his love for them, if they believe that in fact he has loved them to the end, that is going to give them the confidence to go on living lives of asking his Father for everything that they need. And doing so in his name, which here I think simply means asking the way Jesus would ask having their heart so aligned with his that they want what he wants. Their heart beats in line with his. I think what Jesus is, is, is reminding us of here um, is that what we are made for uh, is to be dependent on him, right? Which is a pretty countercultural thing to believe uh, in a place like Boston. Um, this place tells us in so many ways that we are made for independence, right? For self-sufficiency, for autonomy, to not need anything or anyone. And Jesus is saying to that, no. No, you're, you're made to ask. You're made to know that you have everything you need because you have me. Because you have life in me. Because you have life that death itself could not defeat in me. But that's meant to give you the confidence to live dependently on God, dependently um, on, on your Father. 
The joys of this world constantly tell us that if we have them, we won't need anything else. Jesus says, if you have him as your joy, then you'll have the confidence to ask for everything else. Um, I, I've, I've, I've said this before. It just has always jumped out at me. Not, not always. That's, a, that's an overstatement. Uh, for quite a while, it has jumped out at me. Um, that in the Psalms, there's this phrase, uh, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Um, like, I will do what I'm obligated to do. And you say, what in the world does that mean? And there's one psalm that I think makes it so clear. Psalm 116, verses 12 to 14. And this is a great way to get us to this table, right, where we depend for nourishment of our faith on God, on His Spirit that He's given us. Psalm 116 says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? Right? How, how can I repay God for what He has done? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In other words, what are we obligated to do in response to all he's given us? We're obligated to ask for more. We're obligated to recognize that he is God. We are his people. That Jesus is the vine that we are branches. We are obligated to abide uh, in him. Um, this table is not just a picture of doing that. It, it is that. This table is God shedding his grace, his grace abroad in an intense way to feed our faith, uh, to nourish us in the knowledge of him, to make us one people who live as branches in the vine. So before we come here, let's pray.